I just want to define our terms here. Logic, defined as the study of the principles of reasoning, especially of the structure of propositions as distinguished from their content and of method and validity in deductive reasoning. Empiricism is a theory that states that knowledge comes only or primarily from sensory experience in the logic versus empiricism, deontological versus utilitarian um sort of reasoning for why you're a libertarian where do you fall in that sort of justification oh i see yeah um yeah we're doing a redo of this and i, I was actually kind of answering a slightly different uh question um uh yeah on that issue itself um i, I mean my, one of my favorite sources on this would be say chapter six of hoppe's theory of socialism and capitalism and some of his other papers um, and some of Mises' writing too in Ultimate Foundation of Economics and others, where they criticize empiricism. Um, look, there's nothing wrong with empiricism and the scientific method when it's applied in its proper domain, which is studying uh, the laws of cause and effect, right? The, the physical laws of the world. Um, but the problem with putting it paramount and as the only type of law is that it's self contradictory because. Um, the statement that the only way to gain knowledge is through the empirical method is itself not subject to the empirical method. That statement itself is a statement about to know something about the universe, like that the only way to know some things about it is through a certain method. Uh, but that statement itself could never be tested because it's sort of a priori or it lies at the base of the whole scientific method itself. So the entire, uh, the entire empirical paradigm rests upon a priori assumptions, so it cannot deny the validity of that type of inquiry in general. So there's a broader philosophical way of understanding how we learn, which includes empir em empirical methods or the scientific method, but it's not restricted to that. Um, now, the parallel for libertarianism is that um, when we talk about libertarianism and we're talking about norms like ethics, rules, we're not talking about facts in the world like what the world's shape is or how how big it is or how old it is or um you know how the law of gravity works um things like that uh, we're talking about not descriptions of the world but prescriptions of behavior like prescribing what people should do so when we talk about those kinds of norms if you accept say david hume's criticism of natural law reasoning that you you're making a logical mistake when you go from an is to an ought because you're you're talking about the world of descriptive statements the way things are and you all of a sudden you say well because they are this way we ought to do this it's like how do you get that um, so the idea is that you can only get an ought from another ought okay and this is why hoppe's argumentation ethics is so powerful i believe because what he does is he says well that's true so the ought that you get in terms of political norms is the oughts that underlie the dis, the discourse itself that always has to um, be used to arrive at political truths or any truths at all. So he calls it argumentation ethics or discourse ethics. So um, I, I was saying earlier that say Ayn Rand, who influenced me a lot, she always argued that the, the reason for principles and rules is to guide us in our actions living in the real world. So she saw no conflict between what she called uh, morals and uh, and facts, right, uh, or consequences. So 
there are some libertarians who are consequentialists. That is, they say, well, I'm just in favor of whatever rules result in X, which X is usually the greatest good for the greatest number, which is a utilitarian concept, or just overall peace and cooperation and prosperity. Um, a lot of times people think that consequentialism is in conflict with the more principled approach. I don't think so. I think that they're compatible because it's like the guys that are looking at the elephant, you know, the blind guy. One guy's got his tail, one guy's got his tusk, one guy's got his ear, and they all think they, they're touching a different thing because they're seeing different parts of it. But they're all seeing the same elephant. Um, so likewise, I think that consequentialists who are good-minded people who are aiming at coming up with rules that help us live in the real world um, and deontological thinkers or principle thinkers who are trying to uh, identify the principles we need to live by and then stick with those principles, um, I think they're all – living in the same world and their principles are going to tend to converge on each other. So I do think that, as Rand said, the practical is the moral and vice versa. Um, the problem with the practical approach, the purely empirical approach, is that it's ad hoc and and you need principles to answer questions about cases you hadn't thought of or when you have to be quick on your feet, right? That's what intuition and and uh, even prejudice is for, to help you respond to uh, an instinct, to re respond to situations. Um, but uh, one example I would, I would give is one peril of the overly empirical approach is that you never run out of questions and you tend to start asking for guarantees. So in intellectual property, someone says to me, um, well, if you want to get rid of copyright, uh, how's a novelist going to make money? So I will give them an I'll, I'll give them a, my best shot at an answer. I'll say, well, you write a book and people like your novel, and you then you broadcast the world that you're going to release a sequel when you get a million pre-orders, right, of the book. And then maybe someone makes a movie, and then you become the author. You become the uh, consultant for the movie, and you get a cut of the profits of the movie, uh, so that the producer can say that this is the authorized version and sell more tickets to the fans. Okay, so you come up with a reason why, okay, even Harry uh, – J.K. Rowling, who wrote Harry Potter, could have made hundreds of millions of dollars even in a world without copyright. And then they'll say, okay, what about poets? Like they'll just go to the next question, and they'll never be satisfied. You can answer – because what they really want is a guarantee, and it's very similar to um, – the, the the mistake some libertarians make when they, they run around saying we don't need welfare because there will be private charity in a free society. And then the advocate of welfare says, can you guarantee that? And we have to say no, and then they say, well, then fine. I'm going to stick with my welfare. Now, of course, welfare is not guaranteed either because the government ultimately runs out of money, but <laughs> these people don't think like that. But the point is if, if you're just going to be – under siege of a barrage of endless questions from the empiricists, like well, how would this work? How would this work? I mean, you see the same thing with socialized medicine. Well, if we got rid of the government providing for medicine, how would it work? I mean, people in Europe probably literally don't understand how it would work because they're not used to it, right? Or if you say, what would a world without IP look like? Or what would a world without uh, the state look like? No one knows exactly what it would look like. We don't know because we prevented the discovery process by having the state monopolize all this. So really to answer some of these harder questions, at some point you have to identify what your principles and your values are and stick with the principled approach to matters. I think the example that Hoppe gives in a theory of socialism and capitalism is the idea of 
Well, um, it didn't work because this guy was in charge. So it's really a Stalin problem, or it was a Lenin problem, or it's a Khrushchev problem. We just need a new guy. And if you just see government as a tool or a mechanism, then you're always going to just say, well, we just need to try it differently. Like there was never, ever a plane until someone finally invented a plane until the Wright brothers came along. So we're just waiting for the right amount of socialist experiments to take place. Hoppe actually talks about this in, I think this is a quote from The Errors of Classical Liberalism. He says, without moral argument at his disposal, a liberal, classical liberal, is left only with the tool of cost-benefit analysis, but any such analysis must involve an interpersonal comparison of utility, and such a comparison is impossible, scientifically impermissible. Do you think there's really any way to get people on board using an empiricism method at all? Is it, is it worth it? Well, I do think that um, people learn in their lives from different um, uh, in different ways, right? So I think that like the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s was a teaching moment. People have sort of learned, at least they learned for a few decades, the perils of, uh, of too much central planning of the economy. So people have learned just from hard, hard won experience, you know, the benefits of free markets. Um, that knowledge might fade over time, especially if it's not strengthened with theory. But yeah, I think pr uh, practical examples can help. But the problem, like the problem with this great man theory of history, yeah, it's, it's at least the IP as well. This great man theory, like, uh, yeah, the Wright brothers invented the airplane and Edison invented the light bulb. Of course, all invention is incremental, right? It builds upon, it builds upon previous inventions, and um, and usually there are multiple inventors working on the s similar ideas at the same time, and they're one of them is bound to get to the finish line first, but they all are getting there roughly at the same time. Just like uh, Newton and Leibniz invented calculus at almost the same time independently, and like uh, Valras and Jevons and uh, and Menger came up with uh, uh, the subjective theory of value, the marginal revolution, around the same time. Because ideas come when their time has come, when the groundwork has been laid by previous thinkers and the and the foundation of ideas you need to make the next incremental advance. Um, are you familiar with, um, I think it's called um, Marxist versus Austrian class analysis in ethics and economics of private property by uh, Hoppe? Very, very familiar. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic paper. Um, yeah, where Hans points out that Marx was essentially correct in his class analysis, except the mistake was his, his, his view of what exploitation is, right? Instead of the employer or the capitalist stealing the surplus labor value of the employee, uh, the real aggression is, I'm sorry, the real exploitation is aggression. That is the institutionalized interference with private property rights by the state. That's the real exploitation. And if you just understand uh, exploitation in terms of aggression, then the class analysis makes sense. Then you have a class of exploiters, which is the state and its cronies, and the, and the class of the exploited, which is all the people that are supporting, you know, the tax parasites, basically, or the tax, the tax, the taxed and the taxers. Are you familiar with Rothbard's article, Do You Hate the State? I've read it. It's been a while, but sure. Uh, so basically, uh, he says that it, there's a great alliance that can be formed between the radical anti-statists who are, 
you know, minarchists, people like Jacob Hornberger today, back then, people like Henry Hazlitt or Ludwig von uh, Mises. Who do you think are the great um, people that we could uh, ally with as uh, libertarians who, even though they haven't embraced the philosophy, have so much overlap in their hatred of the state? Well, certainly the minarchists, um, and some of the minarchists are so radical that they're almost anarchists, like Locke. Mises was so close to anarchy, and uh, and uh, even Hornberger, for a minarchist, he doesn't deviate. Like he he has the decency not to say anything about IP. I don't think he's very knowledgeable about it, but at least he doesn't say much about it. In fact, he's published Sheldon Richmond in his his journal in the in old uh, previous days opposing IP. Um, um, and uh, who's the other guy you mentioned? Not Hornberger, but the. Uh, uh, I mentioned Mises and Hazlitt as classical liberals. Yeah, so all those guys are so close. They're so close. And then even regular minarchists and libertarians and, and even cla- classical liberals to some degree who have a healthy skepticism of, of, of overweening state intrusion. We can, of course, ally with them, and we always have. Um, I think we can ally with left with left uh, with the anti-state, anti-war leftists, right? Uh, not the not today's power-hungry. Crazy leftists who are just hypocrites, but you know the genuine leftists who really do oppose war. You know, like the Glenn, Glenn Greenwald types, people like that, um, on issues like intellectual property, f- freedom of speech, uh, even international trade. Some of them, like this guy, this Marxist Richard Wolf, he's pretty good on inter- on free trade, even though he's a Marxist, and he's good on intellectual property. So, um, and especially on the war issue, yeah, we we can ally with lots of people on more single issue. Single issues. Uh, what is homesteading, and why is it a legitimate form of property acquisition? So, yeah. So, as I think, as we talked about yesterday, um, what distinguishes libertarianism is a very consistent adherence to the two primary modes of coming to acquire ownership rights in scarce resources. Uh, that is, to getting property rights, um, and the primary mode. Now, this is for things outside the human body. The mode of owning your body is is distinct and unique. That is because of the special connection, the direct link you have with your body because you're the controller of your body basically because you are your body in a sense. You're, you're identified and bound up with your body. So every one of us as an actor has a special claim to his body, so we're the owners of our bodies. But as actors, we, 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 work, we live in the world, and every moment that goes by, we act. And to act means to have a view of the world that we live in, some understanding of our situation, our place, and that the future is coming, and that the future, this uncertain future is coming, but we have some estimate of what is coming, and we have some idea that that of what is coming that we don't like. We don't like something that is coming in the future, and we want to change it. So this is what human action is. Human action is having some idea of something coming that we don't like and trying to change it. And the way we change it is we we look around the world and we see what means are available to us to change this course of events, and we employ or use those means to do it, to divert the course of events and to, in effect, create a new universe. Right. So in effect, every action is creating a new universe, a new future universe that would not have existed but for our action. And if you achieve the universe you're aiming at, you have created profit. That's, so profit in a sense is creating a universe that you want, and and loss is 
living in a universe that you didn't want to come to be, like someone else succeeded instead of you. That's what competition is. Some people succeed and some lose. Um, but to employ these means, uh, these means include objects outside of us, and a means is something that is causally efficacious at changing things. That means it actually helps to change the way the world works. Uh, so like if you think if you want it to rain, like if you have a, a farm and you need it to rain so your your crops don't die, um, you're you're not happy with the, the future that you uh, that you envision, which is a future of drought and and dead crops. So if you go do a rain dance, the means that you're attempting to employ to change this is ineffective because rain dances don't work. They don't actually cause it to rain, so that would be an inefficacious means. But if you flew an airplane up and you seeded the clouds with something that makes them rain, that would be a means of making it rain, right? So that would be employing these means. Now, these means tend to be what we call property. There are resources in the world like land and other objects we find on the land or dig from the land. Um, or from the water, right, uh, from the ocean, and that includes food and resources like gold and steel and iron. Well, we don't find steel, but you know, you find the iron, um, uh, uh, wood from trees, and we need to employ these things. So, to be able to live in the world as an actor, as a purely descriptive matter, as a uh, like Crusoe alone on his island, you have to. Use your body and use your body to use other things to grasp and manipulate these things. So in society, when we have people trying to do this, there's a potential of conflict. People can bump into each other. They can have conflict over who gets to use each other's bodies. That conflict is settled by self-ownership. Everyone owns their body, but you can have conflict over the other things, the cows and the land and the, and the milk and the water and the fish and you know the wood and the houses and everything else. Um, and so if you live in society and you want to minimize the conflict and let people use these things without always warring over them and use them peacefully and then exchange with each other and have division of labor and trade and all this, then you need property rules to say who owns what. And one of those property rules must be that the first person who uses a thing when it's unowned is the first owner because otherwise things could never be used in the first place. Right, so the the ultimate reason that you have to have the homesteading rule or the original appropriation rule is because if you didn't have that, no one would ever be able to use anything, and the human race would die off. There is a insight into how the leftist sees the world. It's generally referred to as the plane crash scarcity scenario. It is the thought experiment of there is a plane crash and only two survivors. One person wakes up first, gathers all the coconuts and all the fruit, and claims them to be his. The second person then wakes up, and the first person says, I'll only give you access to this food on the island where there's no one else and no other food that I have appropriated for myself if you perform a terribly degenerate action. I'm not going to get into it, but that is how the leftists sort of explained how they see the world. That they're just born, and all, and now they have to work, or else they're going to starve to death and go through all this terrible pain. With the ideas of freedom, how do you communicate to someone who has that mindset of, you're born into this world, basically a victim of circumstance, and now you have to work and perform labor, which is basically like slavery? Yeah, it's, it's difficult because... Uh... 
it's difficult to communicate with people with that mindset. Uh, they've basically been spoiled in a sense by the luxury of all the riches that has been produced by previous generations who have labored and by uh, that has been produced by virtue of having a private property free market, relatively free market system. So, you know, it's like these environmentalists who don't, you know, they, they want to, uh, they, they live in this world that we've tamed the, the, a dangerous environment, but they, they pine for a day of the golden days when we lived in harmony with nature, which is just total nonsense, right? Um, so they, they've got disconnected from, from reality because, uh, because, uh, uh, because we're too, we're too successful in a sense, right? Um, I think ultimately the real problem is economic illiteracy, right? These, these people don't understand where wealth really comes from. Um, and they, they never think in principled terms like Rob. Okay. Imagine Robinson Crusoe on his Island. He's alone. There's no one else to exploit him. He's got to labor to survive. It, that doesn't change when other people enter the scene. Everyone has to work in the world and take actions to achieve things and to produce so that we don't starve to death and so that we have shelter and 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 clothing and food. Um, so it's it's really hard to reach these guys. Uh, uh, sometimes I think that uh, uh, you know. Uh, we should get rid of the minimum wage primarily so that these people would live uh, not that I agree with the minimum wage, but you know, maybe so they have to work all day long just to live so they don't have time to, to meddle with the with law. <laughs> it's better if they just wake up at six AM and they collapse at, at at midnight after working all day and then they wake up the next day and repeat. They don't have time to go vote <laughs> for their stupid ideas. And I thought about that with the universal basic income. I'm like, God, the rioters are going to have so much more time to be activists. Exactly. I mean, I if know. you add a thousand dollars a month to whatever the heck they're doing now to survive, Jesus Christ, that's that's terrifying. I don't even care that it's theft. I just don't want them to have it. Uh, do you see a principal difference between personal property, me using this microphone, and private property, me owning a factory? which I've never been to and never go inside of and different people work there and uh, purchase things there. Never been to it. Any principles? Well, well let's define our terms. Uh, so uh, personal in, in the common law, the word personal, personal T usually refers to what we in the civil law. I say we, because I'm from Louisiana, the only uh, civil law state in the United States. Um, I know you're not getting the terminology here, but let me just clarify it. Go where I think you're going. So the world is divided into two great legal systems, the civil law in Europe and the common law. And uh, so you have what's called immovable, immovables and movables in the civil law. Immovables would be land and buildings attached to land, and everything else is immovable, right? A car, uh, an animal, uh, a piece of wood, a piece of metal, a coin, a fish. <laughs> Those are all movables. Uh, or, or they're called real property and personal property in the common law. So personality just means an object that can move around and that someone can own. Um, I think what you mean is um, uh, two types of private property, which could either be real property that is immovable or, or movable, but one that is directly and currently used and possessed by the owner as opposed to one that is uh, remotely owned. Right, something like that, which is which is a, a distinction typically made by the mutualists, these kind of left quasi-libertarians, who basically argue. I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but they argue that um, 
uh, oh, there's a term that they use, um, distant ownership or something like that. Abs absentee ownership, I think they call it. Um, they argue that that's illegitimate and that uh, like the the employees that are working in a factory that is owned by someone else who is absent or remote or the tenants of like say a big apartment building uh, which are living in it which is owned by some absentee gotcha. yeah so the the absentee owner uh, um, uh, doesn't have a right to own it because he's not using it so According to these mutualists, you can own things, but only as long as you currently are, are employing them, um, which to my mind it was totally wrong, uh, but it makes it, it basically obliterates the concept of ownership because ownership is a concept that is distinct from possession. Possession is a legal and an economic concept, um, it, but it basically means actually using or employing something that is being able to employ it as an actor as a means of action. So Robinson Crusoe on its island employs certain scarce resources or means. He possesses them, but he doesn't own them. He doesn't have a property right in them because there's no legal system and there's no other people to recognize or to dispute his property claims. So action itself as an economic concept is is concerned with possession and ability and capability of using a means. Um, whereas in society, we come up with property rights rules to say who ought to have the right to possess this. Mises was clear on this, by the way, in socialism. I can send you a link later, which you can put in the show notes. It's a great quote. Mises talks about the distinction between um, possession and ownership, or as he calls it, I think, catalactic ownership, which is just possession, like economic right ability to use something and legal or juristic ownership, which is the right to use something. So when these guys say that you don't have the, an ownership right to something that you don't possess, what they're doing is they're saying there's no such thing as ownership. There's only possession, right? Which which is the might makes right world that we're trying to get out of. So yeah, if, if I'm able to kill you, I guess that proves that I owned your body and you were my slave, right? And there's no, there's no moral dispute about it. Um, the fundamental problem from a libertarian and a legal point of view that they make, the fundamental mistake that they make is that they they don't recognize the right to contract. So if I own a piece of land because I homesteaded it, and then let's say I improved it by put, putting a building on it, and the building could be let's say a condominium where many people can live, uh, or, or an apartment complex, or it could be a, a factory which can make goods. So I own that, and then I hire employees to work in my factory. Uh, let's say I'm Henry Ford, and I have people working in my factory. <clears throat> now, I'm there supervising it at first, but then I build other factories, and I go live in my, my manor in Long Island, and uh, and I have managers that manage these for me. And the workers are there by contract. They're, they're invited to work to stay there and to use my factory to make goods using my raw materials, and I sell them, and I make a profit, and I pay them a wage right to work there. This is all contractually fine. Uh, which is not what the Marxists believe because they think that I'm stealing their surplus labor value and this type of theft, which is wrong because they don't own that profit that I make. And it's also not um, – It's it, and the mutualists would say that they could homestead that factory because I'm no longer there. I'm absentee. They're the ones that are using it, so they're the natural owners now, which, which is just wrong because they're saying that you can't have a contract. Like if I loan you my car to drive it for a day… 
by, by their argument, I've, I've lost ownership of the car because now I, lo I no longer possess it. If you don't want to return the car to me, you don't have to. I would have to use force to get it from you. So then we would have a war of all against all. So I think the mutualists are hope hopelessly confused on this. Um, they try to argue – Roderick Long tries his best to defend them by saying that – he doesn't agree with them, I think, but he says they're his friends. And he says, well, there's really a spectrum of ownership. There's a spectrum of abandonment. Like if you abandon property, um, it can be subject to rehomesteading by someone else, which we all agree with, and they just have a, 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 a broader view of when you abandon something. And even that is fine. You can have a difference of opinion on – when we determine something is abandoned, like if I if I leave my uh, my watch in a park on accident, most people say it's not abandoned initially. If I find it two hours later, it's still my watch. Uh, but okay, you could say if you're careless and you lose your watch, then you abandon it as soon as you lose it. Okay, that's fine. But if I if I walk away from my factory, I don't abandon it. In fact, I have a sign up saying this is mine, and I hereby do not abandon it. I'm right here if you want to find me, and I have a manager on the on the on the premise, ready to receive notice at any time and taking my orders and running it. So, um, it's uh, the reason you could have a difference on the the rules of when you would have abandonment, but that's only a difference on what default or presumptive rules we would come up with in the absence of an explicit statement. So, for example. Um, if, if you have a, a guy and a girl on a date, and the guy kind of gets the signal that he can give her a kiss at the end of the night, and he does so, and then, the, and then she says, no, I never consented, you could have a dispute about whether he was reasonable in assuming he had consent or not, but that's because she didn't make an explicit statement one way or the other. If she made an explicit statement… Then that's what really we rely upon, her explicit statement. We don't need to go with presumptions and default rules. right? Um, it's the same thing with um, – like uh, if I say uh, let's have a fight, so we're in a bar. Let's go, let's go outside and have a fight, and we both walk outside. We start hitting each other. I've consented to being hit. It's not aggression, right? and the, the other guy has too. Um, now, if I change my mind in the middle of the fight, but I don't communicate that change of mind… The other guy is 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 reasonable in uh, in relying upon what I previously said. Like he can assume that what my previous manifestation of uh, of of consent is is a standing order, let's say, and he can rely on that. But that's the default rule that if we don't know any better, we assume that what you said ten minutes ago is still valid, right? The guy still has the right to keep punching you. Um, but that's only a default rule that we need in the absence of actual evidence, right, or actual statements. If I say, "All right, I'm done with this fight," and I walk off the, I walk off the ring, or I step out of the alley, and then the guy pursues me and hits me, now he's committing aggression. <coughs> um, and so, likewise, the abandonment issue cannot be. You can't justify the mutualist view that that the the absentee owner of a of a living quarters. Or a factory abandons it because he's gone, because there's a spectrum of abandonment, because that spectrum only applies to what the default presumption should be in the absence of a communication. Usually abandonment happens when the owner is long gone, and nobody knows what – did he mean to leave that land? Like the land is being overgrown. It's, he's been gone for 15 years. He may be gone to the Philippines and dead. He might have died in a war. Nobody knows, right? So we do our best to make an assumption. 
what would he have wanted? What did he want? Where is he? And we make an assumption and we move forward. The law makes these default assumptions to say, well, he looks like he abandoned it. The land is not kept up. No one's heard of him from years. Uh, the, the, he didn't leave a forwarding address, etc. So we make an assumption. But if you can find the guy, if he's living right next door and he has, he says, that's my land. I just am letting it be overgrown. Leave it alone. I'm leaving. I'm keeping it for my grandkids. Um, then, then you don't need to resort to, the, resort to the default rules, and that spectrum issue never comes into play, and the defense of the mutualist never – it doesn't succeed. So I just think they're wrong. Yeah. Do you think this is sort of why uh, socialism, statism, institutionalized aggression against private property leads to so many shortages in like every sector, whether it's healthcare or food or businesses, the more regulations you have? Because simply it's the idea that um, contracting, producing, investing, and trading is evil and exploitative, but looting and taxation and burning it down and unionizing, well, that's a good thing, and that's what we need to focus our efforts on. Like, the socialists just have like 10,000 ideas on how to violently redistribute wealth, but are so uninterested in how wealth is created. It, do you think this is the ideological background for why uh, commies starve, basically? Well, I think I think there's something to that. Uh, I guess the way I would look at it is uh, short shortage has two meanings. I guess shortage means just uh, a relative lack of abundance, um, and abundance is the result of productivity and and, and creativity uh, by humans, right? Uh, it results from trade because every time you trade, wealth is created because both both sides are better off after the trade. Even if I give you an apple and you give me your orange and nothing physically is created, the amount of wealth is increased because I'm better off and you're better off, right? Um, just by virtue of a trade. So just allowing exchange uh, creates wealth uh, and prosperity and abundance. And also, of course, human productivity, but productivity re requires access to scarce means and scarce resources. And when we have property rights that protect your right to use these resources, you're able to use these resources uh, more productively and more efficiently. You don't have to waste time defending them as much from marauders and having conflict over them, and you have more certainty that you will have this resource available to you in the future. Therefore, you can engage in more long-term projects. You can have lower time preference and have more roundabout production processes that produce uh, more results, you know, uh, so all those things result in greater and greater abundance. So freedom and respect for private property rights creates abundance and thus militates against shortages. Now, socialists undercut property rights and therefore uh, undercut the incentives to produce and and the entire structure of production, right? So that's why they're Im relatively impoverished and why they have so-called shortages. But Shortage in the more precise or the more narrow sense of economics is an artificial phenomenon created due to price controls, right? So you could say that in a free market, there's no such thing as shortages or surplus because there's only things available at a certain price. So if there is a um, um, if there's some kind of plague that starts killing all the chickens, then you're going to have a shortage of eggs. Uh, or, or a reduced supply of eggs, all that means is that the price of eggs goes is going to rise. So now I I could buy eggs before for 10 cents. Now I can buy them at $10 per egg. 
So I could still get an egg. It's just more expensive, right? And so therefore, I would economize on my use of eggs. So there's a natural feedback mechanism between the price system and relative supply of goods. Um, but there's not really a shortage of anything. People say there's a shortage of like there's a shortage of good in workers right now in the economy. You can't find good workers. It's like well, sure you could if you pay more, you could. So there's never a shortage in general. There's always a supply of something at a given price. What you mean is there's a shortage of there's a shortage of eggs at, t at ten cents. There's a shortage of labor at at five dollars an hour. I need to pay fifteen dollars an hour to get good labor. Um, so when the government comes in and and puts price caps on things, right? Um, that's when you have shortages. When you put a price cap and you make it illegal to sell something for more than the cost of producing it, then no one will produce it, which is why the minimum wage artificially creates uh, unemployment. So things like unemployment and shortages are really only possible when you have intervention in the market, primarily in the form of, pr of price controls. Why is profiting off someone's labor not theft? Let's take two examples, both con contractual and non-contractual to really get at the heart of it. Contractual is hey, do some work for me and build this stuff. You build it, I sell it for much more than I paid you, I have profited off your labor. Or if there's no contract and I go around giving speeches about all the things I've learned from the work you've published on the Mises Institute, is there anything, or rather, uh, how is it not theft that I am reaping benefits as a causal result of you performing labor? Well, first of all, reaping benefits as a result of something is not theft per se theft theft means uh taking that means physically taking um a, a resource that was previously in the ownership and possession of someone else without their consent or in a more abstract or general sense using it without their permission right but basically it would be taking like if you have a bicycle and i take it from you you, you no longer have the bicycle and I, I took it without your consent. I mean, if I take it with your consent, it's just borrowing it or buying it or getting it as a gift. But if I don't have your consent, I'm using your resource without your permission, and that deprives you of the use of it. That's what theft is. Um, making a benefiting from something is not theft because it's not taking. It's it's benefiting. Um, and in general, profit as a psychic phenomenon, profits as I said earlier, profit really means achieving a future world that you desire or preventing a future world that's coming that you don't want to happen by taking an action to divert to, to divert the course of things and to prevent that world from coming about. So it's just a state of affairs, which is why Mises talks about actions having ends or goals. The real end of an action is the end, the end state, some, some achieving some state of affairs that you prefer over to what would have occurred without your intervention. Now, that end could be just a situation like I want a world with more peace or I want a world where that little girl smiles at me, so I, I did a magic trick so she smiled. I want, a, I want a world where this girl goes on a date with me, so I did what was necessary to persuade her to have a date with me. Um, or it could be obtaining an object, right? Uh, that would be ownership. But the object of, of action is not always um, ownership. Sometimes it is. It's not always ownership. But in every case, the if I succeed, we call that profit or a psychic profit. If it was a catalactic thing, an economic thing, like if I was trying to make money, then we call that monetary profit. That's just a subset of, of profit. 
making profit just means you succeeded. So making a profit or benefiting doesn't imply theft at all. So you didn't take the guy's labor when you when you have an employee. You just had a, you had a cooperative arrangement with him where you agreed to transfer something to him in exchange for him performing certain actions. So he. He has control over his body, so he can choose to work or to not work or to do whatever he wants. I want him to work in my factory for my own purposes. That's the goal of my action. I want him to work. To induce him to work, I have to promise him something. I have to compensate him. I have to pay him. So I say, if you do this action, I will give you something I own, which is money. So he does it, and then what he did was he he took materials that I owned and he rearranged them. It would be like if I handed a canvas and paint and a paintbrush to an artist and I said, if you will paint on this canvas for an hour, my canvas, I will pay you uh, an ounce of gold. He does so. He walks away. He has the ounce of gold because he did what was necessary to trigger the transfer of title to the gold. And my painting has – my canvas has been rearranged in a, in a fashion that I prefer. So there's no theft there because I didn't take anything that the painter owned. He doesn't own – see, the, the fundamental mistake is that people think, well, he owns his labor, and I took his labor from him. But no one owns their labor. Labor is just a, a way to describe one type of action. It's action that is undergone as, an, as a means to achieving something that you desire, so it's not something you prefer for its own sake. It's not consumption. It's not leisure. It's, it's labor done to achieve something else, so it's just an action. So it would be like saying um, if we get rid of the word labor and we say action, okay, I will pay you to perform an action. It would be awkward to say I stole his action. He owned his action before, and now I've stolen his action. That doesn't make any sense. He controls his body. He owns his body. He decided to perform an action so that he could get my money. I didn't steal his action from him. I didn't steal. There's no surplus action left over that I stole. Yeah, that's just uh, important because it not only gets at the IP argument. Well, uh, you have a right to the value of your labor. That's devastating because that gives us IP. And it's the root of the Marxist justification for the, quote, workers, as if entrepreneurs don't engage in work, uh, for them uh, taking the factors of production over. So uh, that that's uh, just why I really uh, – any final thoughts on labor theory of value or the surplus value that uh, you really want to uh, hone in on? Well, the, the whole thing is important for people to think about because um, there – I believe there's a strong connection between um, John Locke. Say so John Locke I think is the father of modern Western libertar quasi-libertarian private property thinking. Uh, because he set it on some foundation, um, he made some mistakes, mostly understandable because he was a pioneer, but also because of what he was fighting against. See, Locke was trying to defend individual rights against the the total control of the state, so he had to set he had to somehow say that man, individual man, has rights that are independent of the state, don't rely upon the state. But in a world where the state believed in this divine right of kings, he had to be careful, So, and he was arguing against a guy named Filmer. So what he said was he didn't want to challenge too much right? the prevailing orthodoxy, so he said, oh, yeah, we believe in God. I mean I doubt Locke believed in God, but we believe in – we all believe in God. 
yeah, that's what you have to believe in to believe in the divine right of kings, right? Um, but God gave the earth to all of us humans. He created humans, and he gave this earth to us in common, which means that God owns it, and he owns us as his sort of slaves. But he set us free, and he gave us this world to use to live in, um, and and because we need to live in it, we need to be able to use these resources. So the first guy that plucks something that was previously being unused out of the commons, now he has the best claim to it. Sort of because God gave it to humanity, and we get it, and and the so then the government can't take it from us. But the way he argued that was he says so God gave each person ownership of himself, and therefore each person owns himself, and therefore he owns his labor, and therefore he owns these unowned resources in the commons in the world that God gave us when he mixes his labor with it because you own your labor. It's like a substance that you own. And when you mix it with this unknown thing, you put a claim on it that connects you to it, which is all fine, and I think it was a successful and a good argument, except he said in there that you own your labor. Now, you don't need to say that to make his argument work. You can simply say, I labored on the land. I transformed it. I connected – I put a connection between myself and the land by transforming it and putting a border up between – me and the rest of the world. So now there's a connection between me and this resource that shows I'm the first claimant, the first user of it. So I'm the owner because I'm the first user, but it's not because I owned my labor. It's because I labored on it, right? And it just shows I put my personality on it. Um, but when you make that first mistake that you own your labor, then you see that later thinkers start thinking of labor as this thing that's owned, right? So then we use metaphors like we say, well, we're against slavery because you're stealing this guy's time. … or you're stealing his life, or you're stealing his labor. Well, you're not really stealing his labor, and you're not really stealing his time. It's just a metaphorical way of describing the, the harm done to the victim of, of slavery. Um, but people tend to take these metaphors and make them real in their minds. Um, um, they, it's called reification, right? So that's one peril. Of this type of thinking. Equivocation is another, but reification is one danger we have to avoid. There's no problem with using metaphors to understand things, but you have to realize it's a metaphor when you're using it. And you don't really own your labor just like you don't own your actions. So I think the labor theory of property of Locke then is intermixed with and led to this labor theory of value of Adam Smith and Ricardo and then and then and then Marx. So they're all mixed in together. Which is why it's no surprise that uh, what I would call the ultimate result of the labor theory of property is the idea of intellectual property because you lose sight of the fact that the only way that you can come to own a resource is by homesteading or by getting it by contract. Creation or your labor is never the source of ownership except insofar as labor helps you homestead something, helps you actually get it, but it's not because you own your labor. But then you start thinking, well… I created this farm, therefore I own it. Well, you don't own it because you created it. You own it because you were the first to use it, right? But then you start thinking, well, creation is a source of ownership. So if I create a useful invention or a useful pattern of words like in a novel or a, pa or a useful pattern of, of sounds in a song, I own that because I created that too. Um, so you disconnect the original argument by losing sight of the metaphorical nature of aspects of it, right? And then you have Adam Smith saying, oh, well, then you own this labor, and it's a substance that oozes out from the worker, and it's in the machine. It gives the machine its value, 
that machine is sold on the free market for a price. The price is based upon the value that's inside or in it, this intrinsic value in this thing, based upon the labor time put into it, which is owned by the employee. So therefore, the employer is exploiting him if he makes any profit whatsoever because any profit <clears throat> is selling the object um, for what it's worth, and what it's worth is based upon this labor substance that's inside of it. It was put there by the worker. So you can see how this idea, this overly literal taking to be literally true, this metaphorical idea of labor leads to confusion in political theory and in economic theory. Exactly. You have cases of, you know, volunteers who spend hours and hours working on houses who don't have a right to the houses because they were under contract that they were going to volunteer, even though it they mixed their labor with it. The right to contract would supersede that. Or you could just look at uh, it cost me 50 cents to drive to work and I earn one hundred dollars a day. I profited off my entrepreneur, my boss's labor for building uh, the, the business. Therefore, I'm exploiting his labor. So uh, this, of course, is all ridiculous, and I can't believe we have to explain it, but it keeps growing. People well, are still believing 17% uh, of uh, professors in the social sciences identify as Marxists. Yeah, I think it's – I mean basically there's nothing wrong with profiting off of. This is what people always say. Why is it right exactly. to profit off of me? Like, Or in the case of IP, uh, you know, I, I write a novel and someone else – makes a copy they're profiting off of my labor well there's nothing in libertarian theory that says there's something wrong with profiting off of other people in fact that's what the free market is yeah we always profit off of other people because we're all better off by being able to trade in the division of labor society and we all benefit from previous innovations that we're that that from previous generations that we use to to make things and in our manufacturing processes and our technological knowledge and how we cook things. Uh, we're all better off because of all this. So we're all profiting off of other people. So what? I mean, you know, uh, some uh, 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 Henry Ford invents the modern automobile, he becomes a billionaire. But everyone else is better off because now the world is full of automobiles that make their labor more efficient and make their lives better. So everyone benefits. Yeah, he's profiting off of them, and they're profiting off of him. This is what we want. <laughs> this is what cooperation is. Let's say uh, we are dealing with a volunteer police force like we have in America or voluntarily funded. We're not dealing with conscripts. You and I both acknowledge self-ownership, therefore the drug war is more or less kidnapping if you cage someone for the victimless crime of using, say, cocaine or marijuana. Who do you think holds more moral culpability, the order giver, the politician, or the order follower, the policeman? Personally, I would I, I would say the politician, but I would really say neither. I think that's not putting the focus on the right person. Um, we have to trace it back causally. Who's really responsible? I mean, in general, you could say nobody is because everyone's operating in 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 a sea of economic illiteracy. So really, economic ignorance is the cause. But if you want to blame it on individual humans, um, um, and also. Also, something – it's almost like the prisoner's dilemma or, or um, 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 
when you have a large enough situation, especially with a state in the background, it's inevitable that you end up having special interest warfare because um, if you don't get your share of the pie, someone else is going to get it too first, right? So they, everyone starts lobbying the government. When they're handing out things, they're handing out your your stuff because they had to get it from you by taxes. So you might as well try to get some of it back. So everyone starts lobbying. This what is inevitable. But from a more libertarian point of view, let's think about the drug war. So this guy's in prison rotting away, and he did nothing wrong. So he's being kidnapped, right? Or maybe even murdered, right? His life is ruined. Who is doing that to him, right? Who's the criminal here? Um, is it the jailer? Is it the is it the policeman? Is it the judge? Is it the is it the politician who enacted that law? Is it the voter who voted for the politician? Or is it the juror? In the, at least in the in the in the common law system in, in Britain and the U.S., we have a jury system where uh, to to actually impose these criminal penalties on people, you need to have a unanimous. A verdict of a jury of your peers, and because we have double jeopardy, you cannot retry the guy a second time. So, which means there could be no recriminations against a juror who votes innocent. So, in a sense, I think in our society, in the West, in the United States at least, the most culpable person is the juror who votes guilty for a victimless crime because that person has no excuse. To vote guilty, uh, they're they're not going to be punished for it. They don't gain from it. Like you could even you could even make some excuses for the voter who votes for the politician because, again, if I don't vote for a politician who's going to give me some of my money back, someone else is going to get it instead. So voters naturally are going to tend to vote in their own interest. Politicians are even less blameworthy because. You're going to have a certain class of politicians elected based upon what the voters want, right? And then if you have tax money to hire people, you're going to be able to hire policemen and jailers. I mean, yeah, you can blame them for doing something horrible for enforcing the law, but even if you you kill one of these guys, you say you're evil and you kill them, they're just going to hire a replacement. That's not the fundamental problem. And the politicians want the fundamental problems. If you if you start killing politicians, the voters are going to just elect the same guy the next day, so that's not the problem. So the real problem is voters, and uh, and especially jurors. I would say that's where really the rubber hits the road. Sure, you have a, it, you have a moral duty. You could even say a voter. If I vote for someone, my vote has no effect because whether I had voted or not, the same thing would happen. So it's you know I could have have a protest vote or I could vote socialist or whatever, and it really is not the cause of it. Um, I think it's kind of a weak argument, but you could make that argument. But for a jury, they actually are necessary for for the punishment to be applied to the to the to the poor defendant. Uh, and so, if you're on a jury, you have an absolute moral obligation to educate yourself as to what is right and wrong, and to not vote. You got you have to vote innocent if you're on the jury. Now, the problem with that is that if you are open and honest about it, then our system would just Get you off. It would kick you off the jury. This is the problem with the fully informed jury amendment yeah. people, um, because if you just say I would never vote to convict this defendant of this crime because I think it's my right to judge the law as well as the as as well as the uh, as well as to apply the law, um, then then uh, then the uh, prosecutor or the judge would would kick you off the jury pool. So it's hard to make it work. But if you get on the jury. 
I think you must not vote guilty for a victimless crime, and if you do, you are complicit in what happens to that person. Sure, but uh, the the reason I bring it up is so many of the officers who are uh, enforcing COVID lockdowns, things that I, I mean, as bad as they were previously, this is just terrible to you know cage people for you know being out past a certain time for opening up their business, like productive things in society, they're uh, putting people in jail for, and. The moron cops are still giving this lame example of, well, I'm just doing my job. So if maybe if I ask the question a different way, if I uh, steal your headset, well, I would be responsible because I chose to steal it. What if it turns out I have a boss who I've contracted with to give me a ride to steal your headset? Aren't Mm -hmm. I the action taker, the voluntary action taker, still ultimately more morally culpable? Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, I wouldn't say more. Um, I, I I have no problem with uh, with uh, joint and several liability. Um, look, just like you can have cooperative action for something uh, productive, like you can have people band together to produce something that they couldn't do on their own. Like how could you build a jumbo jet without a bunch of people? You can't yeah. do it by yourself. You need division of labor and you need cooperation. So people can pr- – cooperate together to to do something productive and peaceful but they can also cooperate together uh, to do something criminal right um uh, so that's a that's a criminal conspiracy right um or collective criminal action and in those like you know three three guys rob a bank they're all culpable for what any one of them does if like you have three guys rob a bank and one of them murders a teller during the robbery the other two by the uh by by the common law and by uh, or they're guilty of of murder as well, and I think they should be because they're part of this conspiracy. And all, that would also apply to certain accessories, uh, like the guy who masterminded it and planned it, and also um, the the getaway car driver. Which one is more responsible depends upon the nature of the of the hierarchy. Um, I would say that the the guy at the top is usually more responsible, but they're all they're all fully responsible. So if you take uh, President Truman ordering the dropping of a nuclear bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and let's assume that's a war crime and uh, a real crime. Um, who's guilty of that? Is it Truman or is it the the bomber and the pilot of the airplane? Um, well, I would say or because some people think there's a fixed pie of responsibility. It's 100 percent, and if you give Truman any responsibility, then that means you can't hold the bomber responsible. And they don't want to let him off the hook. But their mistake is thinking you have to let some. Just because you hold A liable means you can't hold B liable. They're wrong. They just don't understand. It's easy to solve that problem with the concept of joint and several liability. I mean, they're both fully responsible. Um, I would say Truman is even more responsible. I mean, take take Hitler. Um, uh, I guess I've just violated uh, Godwin's law, right? Hitler always comes up. Uh, I mean, I literally have libertarians recently on Facebook and stuff. Li- these 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 sort of tunnel vision, overly rationalistic, um, aut- almost autistic liber- libertards saying things like, "Well, Hitler never killed anyone. He never pointed a gun at anyone. Forced." It. I mean, so Hitler was actually innocent. Yeah, like the joke is, Hitler was put on trial after World War II, and the prosecutor said, "You know, your your war caused millions of people to die." Uh, what do you have to say for yourself? And he says, I just gave orders. <laughs> so the, 
the idea is that if you just give an order, it's just your opinion, man, and the other guy has free will. <laughs> and, and so yeah. it's like – so the counterexample I give is like, okay, so I want you to imagine during the middle of World War II, it's raging. You have some Jewish woman who whose family is in a concentration camp, but they took her out so she could be Hitler's maid. So she's cleaning up his office late at night one night. He happens to be there, and he's sitting there at his desk writing out orders to you know to bomb here and to kill these people. She grabs a letter opener and stabs him in the neck and kills him and uh, ends World War II, and the concentration camps are emptied. Her family's saved and everything. Now, according to this guy, Hitler was innocent, so she murdered an innocent man. She should be punished. <laughs> and he said, "He said, yes, you're right, but maybe she should only get a day in prison. <laughs> like, what the hell, man? I mean, you can't save your horrible view with this. I mean… Even if you think she should be put in jail for a day, that's horrendous. What the hell? She should be. She should get the Nobel Prize. You know, she she should get the Hero of the Year award. Uh, she did something good. She killed a bad guy in self-defense and in defense of others, which is perfectly legitimate. And he was a bad guy because he played a causal role in deaths of people, even though he didn't point a gun at someone. So this is this autistic rationalist view some libertarians are stuck with uh, because of their ignorance of, of creative solutions in the law, like joint and several liability. Well, he but, was a soldier in the First World War, so um, I wonder maybe he did kill some people. Yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, but uh, but uh, yeah. So, uh, f final question. Thank you again uh, for being so generous with your time. Uh, many people will say freedom is when you have a lot of choices in life and you're not overly stressed. The libertarian says freedom is the ability to achieve your end so long as you do not initiate aggression against peaceful people and abide by the original appropriation voluntary exchange ethic. Why does the libertarian have the correct freedom position and not the person who says freedom is the ability to make choices and live life with ease and dignity? Well, uh, both concepts are fine in their spheres. Um, you know, If you're a libertine and you just don't like hierarchies, you don't like having a boss, that's fine. But you have to pay the, the, the consequences of that is that you might not get a job and might not have a, a – a lot of money, right? That's fine. If you want to live a life of a bohemian and, and not follow orders, if you don't want to be part of the society that does respect voluntarily certain hierarchical conventions and wear a suit and dress the right way and cut your hair a certain way, um, you, you're free to do that if you don't commit aggression. Um, I almost sometimes think that the, the, the name for our philosophy is a little bit misleading, libertarianism, because it makes it think we're about liberty, which is a synonym for freedom. Um, and we are for liberty, but I think that fundamentally what we're for is property rules that allow us to live without conflict. Now, there are many benefits of having such a society where those rules are respected widely, and one of those is that you tend to have liberty or freedom because you then are able to acquire and control resources undisturbed and unmolested by others and do what you want with and within those resources. So if you own a home, you can do whatever you want inside that home. Um, it's not because you have a right – so like, let's say you like to watch – I don't know. You like to watch porn flicks in your home or you like to uh, – I don't know. You like to uh, walk on a trapeze wire, <laughs> so you build a trapeze wire on your property, and you, you do that all day long. 
you don't need to say that you have a right to watch porn or you have a right to walk on trapeze wires. You have a right to do anything, to do any action that doesn't invade the property of others, and when you have that right respected for yourself, that gives you the practical ability to do these things. So the right to private property gives you the, the practical ability to enjoy freedom and liberty, but it's a consequence of respect for property rights. It's not the fundamental thing because you can't just say we have the right to liberty. Because you don't always have the right to liberty. You don't have the right to do whatever you want on my property. You have to follow my rules. You don't have the right to do what you want with my property, right? Uh, I mean, the, the common sense expression is you, your right to liberty ends where my nose begins or something like that, which is a recognition that you own your body, but you don't own mine. And so you could say that my ownership of my body puts some limits on your actions because you, you're not entitled to use to perform an action that would that would employ my body, but you're entitled to do any other action as long as it's with your own resources and your own property. Um, so when you have a nuanced understanding of what the rights to liberty are, it always is defined in terms of property rights. So we might as well just talk about the property rights themselves, which are the only fundamental and real rights. The book is Law in a Libertarian World and Against Intellectual Property. Stefan Kinsella, thank you again so much for uh, your time. Thanks so much, Keith.